This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right, so now we'll read from God's Word. This is Hebrews 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their rightful duties. But into the second section, Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking the blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of all the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot cannot perfect the conscious of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will must be established, for will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, For in every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant of God commanded for you. And the same way he sprinkled with blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, 
not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by their sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ryan, for reading that marathon. Good morning, Emmaus. Um, So this morning, before we get started, I just wanted to to pray for us before we jump into the text. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, this morning we... We want to recognize, just as Tim said, that you are that you are holy and that your son, Jesus, has made a way for us to be in your presence. Um, I don't feel that myself or maybe many of us grasp <laughs> the fullness of that reality. I just pray this morning that as we, as we look to your word for instruction, for truth, that your spirit would just, would orient our hearts and our minds our affections towards you. Jesus, that we would see you as you are, as a, as a king on a throne, making a way for us. Um, uh, fittingly, as, as we sang this morning, um, would you help us to decrease so that you may be increased in our lives. Jesus, we pray these things by your work and through your name. Amen. So if you haven't already, you can turn uh, to Hebrews 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. And I hope that none of you are too squeamish because we're going to be talking about blood. <laughs> Lots of blood. Uh, kind of seems like this sermon should have been next week for Halloween. Um, anyway, uh, we've been in Hebrews for a bit, uh, but specifically the last couple of chapters we've been in, and including this chapter, we've been kind of talking about the old covenant. There's been a lot of language talking about the old covenant and the, and the old way of, of doing things. In, in the worship of that day before Christ. And specifically, been the author of Hebrews has been making a really strong case for the priesthood of Christ, what Christ does for us in the role of high priest. And that's kind of what we're still, we're still in that, that realm of things today in Hebrews 9. Um, but I think something that sticks out especially, as I said, um, is that the old covenant deals with a lot of blood. <laughs> There's a lot of blood that has to do through worship. And I think for uh, the majority of us, myself included, that feels pretty distant uh, for us. The nature of our worship doesn't deal with a lot of blood, thankfully. And so I think sometimes that language, um, we hear it and it's kind of foreign and it's hard to to take in the gravity of that. Um, You know, I don't think many of us often are jumping at the opportunity uh, to dig into Leviticus (laughs) in our Bible reading plans um, to talk through all that that went into the Old Covenant. And so I think there's kind of a double-edged sword that's happening here. We're on one side, one edge of the sword is um, kind of honestly our, 
our ignorance to how extensive the worship was for the, and the things that, we, that people had to go through to, to get to worship God. Um, you know, I was talking in GC the other day of like, oh, I'm like super ignorant of like Jewish culture <laughs> and like understanding that. I was kind of recognizing that for myself. Um, and I think probably some of you are there with me. Um, but the other side of that is honestly kind of ignorance to how good we have it now, how good, how beautiful the new covenant is. And I think it's, we need to understand the old to appreciate the new. And that's kind of part of what the author is getting into in this chapter. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm actually really grateful that we get to walk through this together this morning. Um, this passage does for us here all the way in the 21st century in the Western church, um, I think is this. So one, that the old covenant was insufficient. And we're gonna dig into to how the author makes a case for that. Um, but we also see that the new covenant is sufficient. And he gives us a really great explanation, a, a great comparison and a contrast um, to see both of those things, to see both of the sides of the sword, the double-edged sword. But then there's something else. He goes a step further and he, and he talks about what Jesus is doing now. And I, maybe that doesn't sound like it necessarily ties in, but I think to understand the old covenant and to appreciate the new, we need to understand um, not only what Jesus did, not only what Jesus did for us in making a new covenant, but what he's doing now to uphold it. And so that's kind of the main, the main takeaway this morning is this, that our worship isn't just about what Jesus did, it's what he's doing. Amen. Amen. So yeah, let me repeat that. Worship isn't just what Jesus did, it's about what he's doing now. To truly appreciate that and have confidence in this new covenant that we're under, that Jesus established as our high priest, we need to look, as I said, not just at what he did to establish that covenant, but what he's doing now to uphold it. So we're gonna walk through that. We're gonna walk through the text and we're gonna talk about the old covenant's insufficiency. We're gonna talk about how much better the new covenant is and why understanding those things and knowing what Jesus is doing right now is even better than just knowing what he did then. Um, so let's jump into the text starting in verse one. Um, just to recap, it said, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. Um, so here again, the author goes out of their way to use the image of the tabernacle as a comparison tool. And this, is, this has happened a lot if you've been with us in Hebrews. Um, the author does this a lot. He uses the, the old to describe, to kind of uses a tool to show how much better the new is. That's kind of what he's doing here, what he's setting up. Basically he's saying, he's saying to his audience, you know, hey, like how in this new covenant we have a certain way of doing things. There, there are things that we are to do in order to worship Christ in this new covenant. He's like, well, remember like how much more crazy it was in the old? <laughs> he's like, there, like, we have things we're supposed to do now. Like there were way more things we were supposed to do, to do then. There are regulations for worship. That's what he's saying. And he kind of launches into uh, a miniature description of the day of atonement. Um, it's the day that the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, something uh, Tim was kind of mentioning in the call to worship. And they talk about the sections and the special symbolic items used in those sections, and even what's inside the Ark of the Covenant, which is kind of random. But in verse five, the author says, we can't speak of these things in detail now, as in, you're kind of already familiar, so it'd be kind of pointless for me to like recap the whole book of Leviticus for you. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of, he's also saying, that's not really the point. That's not what I'm trying to bring up. 
So to spare you the same stroll through agonizing detail, uh, we'll just leave it where the author left it at. There's a mind-numbing amount of detail and instruction that went into very specific people and ultimately person in the high priest who enabled Israel's worship of God. That's kind of what the old covenant was about. And I think the point the author is trying to make, uh, really in the first 10 verses, is this. The old covenant is insufficient. And if you don't believe me, look at verses 7 and 8 as proof. And Hebrews 9, 7 says, But into the second, so into the second room of the, the tabernacle, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. So I feel like there's kind of a couple of clues in there that set us off to this observation of the Old Covenant being insufficient. And I think the first is this, that the Old Covenant had limited access. Think about it. You're relying on one guy who is imperfect as you are, by the way, to make a sacrifice on your behalf. And the order for that to even be successful, he has to do all the right things for the Lord to accept him and the sacrifice. So there's a crazy amount of steps to even ensure that that's possible. And also that only happens once a year. <laughs> like, I think that's the definition of limited. <laughs> and, you know, I was thinking about that, just thinking about the insufficiency of the role and, and the measure um, that they had in the old covenant. And I was just, it kind of took me back to uh, when I first started working at my, my last job. So I'm on church, I'm on staff at the church now, which most of you know. And before that, I was working for a coffee roaster here in town called Novo Coffee. And when I started that job was like literally within like the same two weeks that my daughter was born. And so let's just say when I started the job, I was not getting much sleep. <laughs> I don't really even really remember like the first three months of that job, <laughs> except that there was, so part of my job, I did a bunch of things there, but some, one of the things I did was help deliver a product to customers. And one of the things we sold was a cold brew, natural cold brew coffee, which I'm sure lots of you enjoy. Yeah, see Emily smiling over there. And uh, so these were held in kegs, like most liquid things are that you sell. And I don't need to explain kegs to you, probably. And uh, so, you know, my job was to load the kegs into the van and secure them and then take them to the places they needed to be. Well, on that one particular day, I did that. At least I thought I did that. And uh, I get a call about three minutes into my drive saying, hey, just so you know, uh, there are kegs rolling down Blake Street. You should probably turn around. <laughs> so what happened was I thought I closed the door all the way. Also, this van was like... It's not the best fan, I'll just say that. So if you didn't like really shove the door, it would just like open. And the kegs are really heavy and sometimes they like don't stay in place uh, when you're driving. So when you have a van full of like 20 kegs, which is like a thousand pounds of coffee, like sometimes they tend to roll around. So anyway, so I like realize, I like look back, sure enough, like the doors are like wide open and there's just like, and there's like literally kegs like behind me on the street. So I like turn around and I like, I pick them up, I load them back up, and I like go back to the restaurant with my like tail between my legs. <laughs> and luckily they were super gracious with me and were like, and it was just kind of this running joke the whole time I was there. It was like, hey, like check the doors. And uh, you know, just, yeah, random jokes. And um, yeah, it was just funny. It was just making me think about 
the inadequacy that I felt <laughs> in doing my job well when I was, you know, lots of uh, sleepless nights and, and all that and making silly mistakes like that that could have been like way worse than they were, um, as bad as it sounds. And so, yeah, I just think it's a silly example of inadequacy. It's a silly example of insufficiency in a job, but we've all been there, right? Like, Everyone has a keg rolling down the street story. It might not be like a literal rolling keg down the street for you. I hope it's not, because that was really silly. Um, but yeah, whether it's in our jobs it's, or it's in our relationships or things we want to achieve, at some point we've experienced falling short and we, we recognize the insufficiency that we have in doing all the right things. And I, I think that's kind of the point of what the author is getting at here. Is to, when he's describing, when he's setting up this comparison He's not setting it up just to give them a history lesson. He's saying, like, remember, remember how sufficient that system was, that one person once a year could go in one tiny room to do this thing. And so I think we recognize, yeah, that part of the insufficiency is a limited access to God. But I think another thing is, is honestly limited forgiveness is another insufficiency. You know, look again at, at, uh, at verse seven, he says, the sacrifice he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So yeah, only the unintentional sins. So what about the sins that you intended? <laughs> Those aren't covered. That seems pretty insufficient if the goal is to forgive sins. <laughs> um, and I, I know that there are other things within the law that individuals could do for, to make sacrifices on their own behalf. Um, but in a way, that wasn't, that wasn't ideal. You wanted the priest, you wanted God's chosen to do that for you. And so I think we talk about, you know, like our limitedness. We also talk about the limitedness of the forgiveness in the Old Covenant. And, and he, the author goes on to make that point even further in verse nine, kind of second half of verse nine. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The author's saying there's no full confidence in the old covenant. Even if you do all the right things, you're not gonna have a clean conscience before God. If the, the holiest of days where the high priest goes, is, gets, once a year gets to go into the holy of holies, and the only thing he's paying for is your unintentional sins, that seems pretty inadequate. <laughs> that might be like another definition of limited or insufficient. And I don't think that anyone in the old covenant could have full confidence in that covenant and their relationship with God. I mean, that kind of sucks. And I know that's kind of a crass way of saying that, but I think if we're honest, a lot of us worship God or maybe aren't really worshiping him because we feel that way about our relationship with him. We wanna know God, we wanna experience him, but our conscience just won't let us, not fully. We wanna be right with him so we aren't honest with him. Or we just straight up hide. We hide from his presence because we're ashamed because our consciences aren't clean. And if we were still under the old covenant, 
would be reasonable. But can I let you in on a not so secret bit of good news? The old is obsolete. Aaron ended us on this last week. Hebrews 8.13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Miss, if you see Christ as the way, Jesus says of himself in the book of John, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you see Jesus as the way to the Father, the one who's making that old covenant obsolete, you don't have to fear the insufficiency of the old. There's no need to fear your own insufficiency before God because Jesus has it covered. And if you don't believe in Jesus and who he is and what he did, then honestly, I don't think you should be confident to approach God. And maybe that sounds kind of harsh, but I don't know how else to say it. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There's not a lot of room there for other options, even if we want it to be. That's the truth, and I want us to live in that truth because it's freeing, because it's not, it's not any longer about our sufficiency. It's not any longer about how we measure up, how we do the right things, how we are living on a hope and a prayer <laughs> that we got it right. It's about the sufficiency of Christ. It's about the work he was able to accomplish. And the reason the old covenant worship was, as I said, drenched in blood, basically, <laughs> in the beginning, is because they're making a trade, a death for a death. Paul tells us in the letter to the Romans that the wages of sin is what? Death. God takes his holiness seriously. And nothing unholy can remain in his presence. So it's destroyed. The tabernacle was a mercy. Not only that, the holy of holies was a mercy. There's a reason the high priest had a rope tied around his waist when he went in there. Nothing unholy can stand in his presence. I mean, look back at Genesis. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, what happened? Two animals were slain, and their pelts were used to cover them. Those sacrifices were the death that they deserved. It was a trade, a life for a life. And God, what did he do? He put a flaming sword at the entrance. What do you think happens to you if you try to pass through a flaming sword? <laughs> Probably lots of blood <laughs> and lots of death. And I know that's kind of gory for a sermon on a Sunday morning. But what do you think happens to the high priest if he didn't do all the right things on the Day of Atonement? His corpse was pulled out by the rope tied around his waist. The old covenant was drenched in blood, literally. Take my word for it. You don't want to be under the old covenant. That's not the kind of relationship you want with a holy God. He's just to punish sin.
The Jews certainly didn't want that. They looked forward to a Messiah, a savior who would bring a new covenant with God, someone who is sufficient. And whether you find yourself unsure if you believe in Jesus or God, or you do believe, and you still find yourself struggling to have a clear conscience, look with me at this next section because we're shown why Jesus is that promise fulfilled, what makes him the Messiah, what makes this new covenant so much better. So look at me in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Remember I said at the beginning, it's not just about what Jesus did, it's what he's doing. But we kind of need to know what he did (laughs) so we have context for what he's doing now. So to recap, the old covenant is insufficient. It's pretty clear. But what we see here, what Christ did is the solution and that the new covenant is sufficient now. The author explains that here, I think, really well. We've established in previous weeks, but if you weren't here, Jesus is a better high priest. We've been talking about that for a while. Jesus fulfills a priestly duty in the new covenant that he has created with us that's way superior to the old. The author talks a lot about that in chapter seven when he compares Jesus to Melchizedek, a priest who's forever. And Aaron pointed out last week in chapter eight that he's not just a priest behind a curtain, in a temple, but he's a public servant. He's a minister of that new covenant. And here the author takes it one step further than that. Not only is he a better priest, not only is he a better minister to the people, but he is the actual sacrifice. He says he entered into the place where the high priest goes, but even better, the actual presence of God in his throne room, not just an earthly place, not just an earthly copy. You know, last last month, early September, Sarah and I got to go with her family to California. We got to go see the Redwoods, which was like on the bucket list for her mom. And it was really amazing. Um, If you haven't been there, it's honestly really hard to describe, but it's kind of like you're just like walking around in normal California and then you just like step into Jurassic Park. <laughs> well, and it's just like, there's like ferns and you can't see the sky and there's trees that like 20 people couldn't even like wrap their arms around. And it's, it's amazing. And I was gonna like put some pictures up for scale, but like it won't do it justice. And I think that's the point. Um, there's something about places like that in nature, places like that um, where it's just one of those things you have to be there. You have to be in the redwoods, in the middle of the forest, to really experience it and really 
and really appreciate it, see it for what it is. And no picture and no amount of my description is gonna do it justice. And I think that's the point that the author here is making. That the new covenant is better because it's not a copy. It's not a picture of the heavenly places. It's not a picture of the throne room of God. Jesus went into the actual presence of God before his father's throne to enact, to make this new covenant with him for us. That's how he became a better high priest. It's because he offered himself as a sacrifice. He didn't just walk into the Holy of Holies. He sacrificed himself to get there. That's why we call Jesus the Lamb of God. The Old Covenant is insufficient because you yourself can't be in God's presence if you're unholy. And the one person you can once a year, it's not perfect either. We talked about that. And can mess it all up. And you need a sacrifice because, well, it's death for a death. It's been that way since the beginning. It's the bull or you. So you're probably going to choose the bull. <laughs> and even if all that goes right, you have to do it over and over again, year after year. It doesn't end. Our sin doesn't end. Therefore, we constantly need a sacrifice. And at the end of all that effort, your conscience still isn't clear. The new covenant is better because Jesus' sacrifice for us as a priest wasn't the blood of a bull. It was his own. The new covenant is paid for the blood of God, the God of the universe, who became like the least of us, who took on flesh and blood, spilled that blood on the cross, his perfect life traded for our imperfect lives, one for many. Jesus being a better priest because he had no sin to begin with. Entered not a copy of God's presence, but his actual presence. Instead of making a sacrifice, he gave it of himself. The author of Hebrews says he's offered without blemish. The only person who ever lived that didn't even need a sacrifice to be made on his behalf made the choice to become the sacrifice. And verse 14 says, if there's a saying, if that's true, how much clearer can your conscience be to worship God, to truly obey him, to serve him with confidence? If the blood of bulls and goats could save even a fraction, even a fraction of our insurmountable sin, how much more? Power is in God's own blood to save? The answer is a lot more. <laughs> more than we can ever comprehend. Honestly, we could stop there. We could camp out at the cross where Jesus paid the debt, the old covenant, with his blood. We can celebrate that round and round. And frankly, that's kind of what the church mostly does. How many songs do we have that are about the cross? You know, quite a lot. And that's not wrong. Christians should... Celebrate the cross. 
We should stop. We should reflect. But it brings me back to what I said that I want us to walk away with. Her worship isn't just about what Jesus did. It's what he's doing, what he's doing right now. It's about what he did and what that enables him to do now. So look at verse 15. It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So a, we've been given a therefore. So we have to ask. Perfect. Everything we've established so far about what Jesus accomplished, both as high priest providing himself as a sacrifice, is for what comes next. He is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death for us, not just to pay off the old covenant, to pay off that debt that we couldn't pay, not just to make a new covenant, but to mediate that new covenant himself. That's what makes him a better priest. That's what makes him a better minister of this new covenant. He didn't just hand it over to someone else to take care of. He didn't hand it over to another priest. He became the high priest. He's doing the work of this covenant himself. And we are shown in Jesus' death did more than just forgive our sin, more than redeem our transgressions. Keep reading with me, verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So what's the author saying about Jesus? His death not only pays for our sins, it gives us access to his inheritance. I mean, the logic's pretty solid, right? A will only goes into effect after the one who made it died. That's how wills work. That's why my mom keeps hounding my dad about <laughs> finally getting his together. Um, dad, if you're listening, do that. That's why in verse 18 they say, even the old covenant deals with blood. Again, death for death. Life for life. Verses 19 through 20 Two, the author speaks about blood being involved in basically everything. Everything in the old covenant was sprinkled in blood, was washed in blood. The author is referring to a moment in Exodus when Moses and the elders, they went on to Sinai, the place nobody wanted to go, <laughs> that I was describing earlier, and Moses was there for, for 40 days. And when he came back, he had a covenant to give to his people between them and God so that they could have a relationship with this, this God that seemed out of touch, out of, inaccessible. So in Exodus chapter 24, it says this. Speaking of Moses, he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. Half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. 
and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So yeah, literally you were covered with blood. <laughs> um, not something that happens on a Sunday morning. I, we're making, like, some of the wine spilled uh, for communion earlier, and I was making a joke. I was like, oh, it's a good thing, like, we don't get covered in blood, because I would just go around and, like, be throwing wine in here. <laughs> not going to do that this morning. <laughs> um, but look, the point we're trying to make is this. Our worship isn't just about what Jesus did. It's about what he's doing. And what is he doing? He's mediating his will. We've already been washed in his blood. <laughs> That's why we don't need to be covered in it anymore. And that word for will, it's the same word for covenant. Why does that matter? Because the inheritance he shares with us, it totally redeems. It fixes what was wrong with the old covenant. Where the old covenant gave us a guilty conscience, Jesus covers us in his blood to make us totally innocent, to present us without blemish before the Father, where we had extremely limited access to God. Our access is unlimited now. Instead of God residing in one tiny room that one person could go into once a year, God himself resides in us through his spirit. How much closer could you get? I mean, that's amazing. In his death, he fulfilled the old. In his resurrection, he made the new. And he mediates our covenant with the Father himself. That's why it matters that Jesus didn't just die. He was raised to life. And is now using that life to sit at the right hand of the Father, distributing his inheritance to us and acting his will. That's crazy. And like I said, maybe it's sometimes lost in us because we don't fully grasp what it's like to live under the old. But this is what Jesus does. And I hope that that's encouraging to you guys this morning. I really do. We, under, we can understand that double-edged sword a little more. We understand the old insufficiency and we celebrate the new in its sufficiency. But we want to understand more what Jesus is doing right now. That's amazing. And we can say that, and we can look at this, and we can celebrate. We can be thankful. But it kind of leaves us at the question that we always have, that we're always left with. What do we do with that? What do we do with this amazing thing that we're learning, <laughs> that we are knowing? You know, verse 14, it told us our conscience was made clean so that we could serve the living God, not with dead works. Well, what does that look like? How do we have confidence that this new covenant isn't going to fade away like the old? Great questions. The author gives us the answers. Look with me in verse 24. It says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, but are copies of the true things, so again, the same theme. Then to heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, 
as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he says, not just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What can we be confident in, Emmaus? That his work was sufficient. That it's finished. It's done. Aaron said this a couple weeks ago, I think, and I'll say it again. The picture of someone sitting down, Christ sitting down at the right hand of the Father, people sit down when they're done. When you're finished with your labor, you sit. Jesus isn't dying repeatedly every time we sin. That would be crazy. It was once, it was for all. His blood was sufficient. The blood of the lamb, adequate. And so how we respond is that we can offer ourselves in worship because Christ is sitting at the right hand of his father. And he's ushering us in to sit at the father's feet. And if we know anyone, if you know anything about anyone who's encountered God's presence in scripture, it was impossible for them not to be changed when they truly experience his presence. Think about Moses coming down from Sinai. He was literally glowing and had to like wear a shroud because it was so intense. That's change. Might be the definition of change. We can have joy. We can have peace like no one in the old covenant could. We can love those around us with kindness and gentleness and find in us self-control because as living sacrifices, we're dying to ourselves or becoming alive in Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Amen. He's saying, present yourself the way Christ presented himself as a sacrifice before God. A life for a life, death for death. That is our worship. That's how we serve the living God with our lives. Verse 23, the author of Hebrews says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. He's using that comparison again. But he's not just talking about lampstands and basins and altars and curtains. The heavenly things being purified, that's us, that's you, that's me. So those of us washed in the blood of the lamb. Worship isn't just to marvel at what Jesus did at the cross. It's to be transformed by, why he, by what he is accomplishing right now. What he's able 
to do right now to bring us into the very presence of God, not just a shadow, not just a copy, but his true presence. And when we do that, when we say yes to Jesus as our priest, when we are washed in his blood, we should be changed. How could we not be changed if we're actually coming to behold him? As we say in this morning, for truly beholding God. That's what it does. And that's what we eagerly wait for. Our worship isn't just about what Jesus did. It's about what he's doing and what he's calling us to do, to be ministers of that new covenant. When Jesus, before he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, he gave us a word. He said, go make disciples. And that he's saying, if we look at what the author is saying here, it's saying, go with a clean conscience before God. Go confidently in the truth of the gospel and serve and love the people around you that they may experience the love of God, that they too would be drawn into his life-changing presence through the work of his spirit and the power of Christ's blood. It's what we're called to do as we see what Christ is doing for us now. And at the end of, end of chapter nine, he says we eagerly wait for him until he returns. See, the best part about all this is that I think is also sometimes out of our grasp is that he's coming back. Jesus one day is gonna leave the throne room to return to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So while we shouldn't just focus on the past, we shouldn't get caught up in the future either. Because as much as we can't comprehend what was going on in the old covenant and how to compare that to the new, we're just as, if not more, insufficient to comprehend what it will be like. And we're not just gathering as a community on Sundays to consider God and his presence and of what we know of him, but that we will be face to face with him. I can't comprehend that. I'm not sure most of us can. But that's what we wait for. We're to do that with eagerness. And what we do while we wait is what Jesus has told us, to go and make disciples, to go and call others to enjoy, to experience the presence of God that we have now. And it's funny, we talk a lot about the idea of the already but not yet. That we, even now, we have a glimpse of the presence of God. And I think it's funny because, in a sense, <laughs> those who were under the old covenant, what we have now was there not yet. No way, you know, we talked about this when we were in Isaiah. If Isaiah, like, got to come to Emmaus on a Sunday morning, his mind would be blown. <laughs> you know, anyone of the old covenant would be like, what? Like, there's not a, a curtain? No, it's torn. God's presence is here. Oh, God doesn't reside in, he, God resides in me? Like, they would not have comprehended that. They looked forward to that, but they couldn't comprehend it. So we should have joy, <laughs> 
even if what we have is a glimpse of what we will have, we should have joy that, that Jesus is a God of promises, that as faithful as he was to make that new covenant, to fulfill his role as Messiah and bring what was not yet to the already, the people of the old covenant, how much more can we have confidence in? How much more can we have joy in that one day, even as we try to faithfully live out this new covenant here on earth, that in a sense it will fade away. What it fades into is something more beautiful, something more lasting and amazing and eternal than we can comprehend. We aren't looking forward to more suffering <laughs> and enduring our insufficiency. We're looking forward to more of God, more of his presence than we can comprehend now Amen. when he returns to bring us home. So this, may, this, this morning, I may ask, as we consider what Christ is doing for us now, because of it, that your sin is not only erased, but you have access to your creator, the source of all joy and peace and love and hope. I implore you to take advantage of it to actually, as Tim called us to this morning, to behold him, to consider what Christ has afforded to us, what his inheritance has gained us, and to go before your God, your King, the Lamb, with confidence this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, can we admit that we fall short? That if we were left to our own, there's only death. But Jesus, you made a way that is better. And you offer it freely. By faith, we are saved through grace as a gift. Jesus, help Help me, help us to comprehend that when we're at our worst, when we think we're at our best. The your blood that was spilled, the most undeserved death there ever was or will be, was also that we could enjoy you fully with unveiled faces, we could behold you. Jesus, would that truth, would your gospel change us, transform us into more of your likeness, that we too would, would enter this world with love for those around us, with mercy, with kindness, with patience, and in that we would experience more of who you are because your spirit is, is making us more like you. Jesus, that's our prayer and we pray in your name. Amen.